It's Friday, February the 25th. This is Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up, we're talking about consumers who are fed up with major retailers, organisations like the post office, which are blaming poor customer service on COVID. We're going to have to move on from that. We're going to be talking sport, of course, because Russia has now lost the final of the Champions League and a Grand Prix that was due to be staged in Sochi has been cancelled. On Russia, we're talking what next? I'm talking to Mark Almond, who is the director of Oxford's Crisis Research Institute. But first, I'm talking to the former British ambassador to Russia, Sir Andrew Wood, about what next and can anything diplomatically be done to pull back Russian advances on Ukraine? So the full-scale assault on Ukraine continues with Russian troops arriving in northern districts of the capital, Kiev. The Russian military says it seized a strategic airport outside the Ukrainian capital and claims it's cut the capital off from the west. The Ukraine president, Zelensky, has tweeted, Russia has embarked on a path of evil, but Ukraine is defending itself and won't give up its freedom. I'm joined now by Sir Andrew Wood, who is the former British ambassador to Moscow, and he is, of course, an advisor to Chatham House. Sir Andrew, how significant is it that President Zelensky has offered to make Ukraine a neutral country? What does that mean, and will it make any difference? I don't think it will make any difference in the sense that he won't have the trust of, of Putin anyway, besides which Putin's aim is to completely cut off Ukraine from anyone else but him. Why is he saying it then? Because he thinks it may it may stop the Russian president in his tracks? What 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 is the point of it? Well, the, the excuse, and it was only an excuse that the Russians give or have given, is that they fear that Ukraine is about to attack them and that they, so it, what it would do is expose how stupid or how unplausible the Russian reasoning was. What can be done now diplomatically, Sir Andrew? You've many years' experience. You're a former ambassador to Moscow. Conversations are still happening with Foreign Secretary Lavrov, but it's all down to Putin, isn't it? He calls all the shots. Absolutely. It's no good talking to Lavrov at all, who just says or echoes what he's supposed to say. It's mostly untrue anyway. Nothing that can be done diplomatically. Well, no, because uh, this is an aggression by Russia against Ukraine, and there is no conversation possible between them because what Russia wants is for Ukraine to be neutralized rather than become neutral, to become something which is theirs to command. That situation, there's nothing to negotiate, really. How significant are the sanctions that Britain has announced? More more individuals targeted, more banks targeted, more companies going to be targeted. We've heard in the last hour or so that the European Union say they've targeted Putin's personal wealth and that of his foreign minister. Is all of this too little too late or would it have made no difference anyway? I don't think it would make any difference because this is a a huge throw by by Putin. He doesn't believe that uh, any of us can introduce sanctions so quickly that it's going to cause him to back off now. So he will press ahead and try and get what he can and deal with the rest later. He probably supposes that in the end, we'll just have to shrug our shoulders and, and, and put up with it. I think he's wrong about that because what he's done is something so grave that we couldn't possibly afford to do that either. So this is a long-term problem. What can be done then? Because it looks like the map of, of Europe is being redrawn. People are using expressions like the darkest hour since the Second World War. What can and will, would you, would you be advising the British government, the EU, the United States to do? Because he's clearly going to conquer Ukraine in just a matter of days. I'm not sure that that is true. Um, ah. 
Ukraine is putting up a pretty stout resistance in order to conquer Ukraine in that sense. He, Putin, has to come in and occupy a pretty large swathe of Ukraine, which is a huge country. So I, I think that sort of a, a fight will, will continue. And I don't think Russia has done quite so well as they boast of doing from the outset. What he's trying to do now is to they call it decapitalize or something like that. Anyway, to get hold of Kiev and use that as the center of government and to put their own person in there and see if they can control things that way. What about domestically, Sir Andrew? Uh, we saw people taking to the streets in Moscow. They were brutally arrested, disappeared very quickly. Uh, there is evidence that there is unrest in Russia over this military uh, campaign. Is there any possibility that the despot Putin could be overthrown or the generals even could perhaps stage a coup against him? Well, there is a possibility over the longer term. But again, I don't think that's something that's going to be done immediately. First of all, because Putin has put out quite a lot of excellent propaganda about how necessary it is to do what he's doing. But mostly because there is, in effect, no true government in Moscow. You have Putin at the center of things and unable to issue commands to the army and so on. And there's no sign yet that that part is breaking down. The fact of the matter is also that, that in, in contrast to that, the large number of Russians do not like at all the idea of being in a war, particularly in a war with uh, Ukraine. The situation has yet to sort itself out into any, any definable pattern of that nature. Just finally, Sir Andrew, I mean, we all want to look into a crystal ball. What do you see in a year's time? Will we then back in the grip of a full-scale Cold War all over again? I think so, yes. I, this, this is a war against all of us, really. Um, it's not just that, that Putin wants to get Ukraine and then he's going to say, well, that's fine, we all smile. What he's doing is to take on an increasing number of, of, of people based purely on military might. He has no interest, as far as I can see, in coming to a calm situation with the West. And there are other countries like uh, Poland and so on that he would like to bring back under his control. The trouble is it's not entirely rational. No, no, of course. If Russian boots go into Poland, doesn't that then become a complete step change? Isn't that when NATO then militarily engage with Russia? Yes, I wasn't saying that was a particularly likely thing. I mean, just that he's got a long-term idea in, in, in mind, which in, includes that sort of thing anyway. You must have dealt with him, I guess, when you were in Moscow. What is he like? Well, it was in his early days that I was still in Moscow. He's a natural and fluent liar. His aim from the beginning was to centralize government in, in Moscow for the whole of, the, of Russia. And he's gone down that path for the 22 years or so that, that he, he started on then by beginning to hobble the press, by using considerable force and, and without any feeling about casualties to bring Chechnya back under his control. Uh, he then started demolishing the government structure so that it's got in the position it is now where it doesn't really have a law that it, uh, controls him or his immediate circle. He uh, has fraudulent elections. He, for no particular reason, classifies some people as being foreign agents or should go to prison for this and the other. So he's restored 
or erected a system of terror which is more like Stalin than even uh, subsequent uh, rulers of the Soviet Union. Absolutely terrifying. Sir Andrew, we're very grateful for your insights. Um, That's Sir Andrew Wood. He's a former British ambassador to Moscow and advisor to Chatham House. So President Putin's blitzkrieg approach to the invasion of Ukraine has seen his troops capture vital strategic hubs, including an airport, and spread across the country at lightning speed. What might happen next? Mark Almond, director of the Crisis Research Institute at Oxford, has run through the options in a very powerful piece in the mail today. The headline, Mark, is from Swiss revolution to apocalypse. What might happen next? Let's deal with the most unlikely option first, which is a great relief having read that. You think it's pretty unlikely prospect that it could turn into a nuclear conflagration? Yeah. Shall we say at the beginning of this week, the prospect of nuclear war was unthinkable. It is now thinkable, but still very improbable. But Mr. Putin has threatened that if NATO was to intervene or try to frustrate his activities, then he has a riposte, the like of which we've never seen before, which implies the use of nuclear weapons. And I have to, we have to therefore say that though it's highly unlikely it will come to that, there is the problem that Mr. Putin keeps his threats. You know, he may not keep his promises, but he keeps his threats. Even though he might be a bit unhinged about Ukraine, perhaps he realises the outcome could be destructive for him and his country too if he was to go down the nuclear route of course it would be it would be a suicidal act but as i say i I think it's highly unlikely but it's it's a little bit less unlikely than it was before uh, yesterday morning now what you describe as a vain hope is the idea that putin who does like to be the master of surprise he, he makes this rapid advance in and then calls a halt because he's got what he wants, he's humiliated NATO, you could argue, and um, he's captured large parts of Ukraine, and then he would stop. But you don't think that's likely either? No, I mean, there are slight signs today that uh, the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, has offered to declare Ukraine neutral. The problem is the Russian response is to say it must not only become a neutral country and promise never to join NATO, it must engage, it must be disarmed completely. What does that mean? Even hunting rifles? And then it also must be denazified. And this is a very vague term. What does that expression mean? Well, the Russian government's argument is that the real power in Ukraine is held by nostalgics for operations with Hitler in the Second World War. Now, there are a few thousands of these people. And they're, they're very unpleasant. But I mean, the idea that the Jewish president of Ukraine and his government are you know, a bunch of neo-Nazis is, is absurd. But it's a little bit like at the end of the Second World War, Britain, America and Stalin and Soviet Union agreed that we would denazify Germany and the defeated collaborationist regimes. The problem was, the British and Americans meant get rid of people in brown shirts and jackboots and who were in Hitler's elite. What Stalin did was to say, fascists are people who are rich or or religious believers. You know, so quite quickly, Churchill and Roosevelt would have been considered targets for denazification by Stalin. And I suspect the Russians are using this emotive word to be the basis of a purge of a very wide chunk of the politically active part of the population of Ukraine. Now, you make the point um, that Russia's early triumphs could prove illusory. Um, We all remember 1941, the Nazis overran Ukraine, but were undermined by the underground, the partisans. Now, the Ukrainians, many people have been given arms by the government, firearms, shoulder-launched anti-tank weapons. You're, You're pretty certain well not certain is the wrong word nothing can be certain but you think there is a good possibility that there will be stiff armed resistance which will haunt the russian occupiers for a very long time 
Yes, I think although it, it's possible that the sheer military power of the Russian army and air force will smash the Ukrainian army in the next few days, you know, however bravely they want to fight, they'll be overwhelmed. But then, as you say, there's been this distribution of firearms, some anti-tank weapons, and, and so on. And so there will be, I suspect, many, many thousands of Ukrainians who will take to the hills and to the woods, or just in the you know, tower blocks, if they have a chance to take a pot shot at a Russian a soldier, Russian policeman, or a collaborator with the Russians, because there will be obviously opportunists who think that the Russians are the winning side. You will get the kind of civil war which, after all, haunted certainly the Western Ukraine in the years immediately after the Second World War, and obviously the Russians faced in Afghanistan or Chechnya 20 years ago. And what if he does decide he's on a roll here, Mark, and his army then could move on to this weak neutral ex-Soviet states, you point out, um, such as Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Would the, I mean, if he, if he rolled his tanks into those countries, does NATO do anything? I think it, it, no more than it's doing now. And um, there's a little country between Ukraine and Romania, which is in NATO and the EU, which is called Moldova. And that has a restive Russian-speaking minority. And so I would have thought there's a huge danger to that little country that the, the Russians will say we're going to demand that you adopt the kind of policies that our newly liberated Ukraine adopts, but also particularly the oil-rich countries like Kazakhstan, gas-rich like Turkmenistan. It might be quite nice for the Russians to control that because it would give them an even bigger share of the world energy market. And of course, we are now in a world, unlike in the communist era, we're interlocked. And so, yes, we have sanctions that can hit Russia. But as one Russian said yesterday, if you use oil to fuel your car, it's going to go up in price. If you use gas to heat your home, it's going to go up in price. And if you eat bread, it's going to go up in price. So there is, there is the risk that the Russians will use their own weight in the energy market and their military power to seize these energy-rich but pretty defenseless states. And in that sense, reconstitute a Russian empire, if not necessarily the old Soviet Union. It feels then what we're like in a return to the old Cold War. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, the tensions are going to be quite severe. But see, if you like, at least in the old Cold War, there was no shooting across the Berlin Wall or the Iron Curtain. Whereas now you're going to have, we already have many, many thousands of Ukrainian refugees in Poland and Romania. What if some of them decide to go up to what will now be the new Iron Curtains and try to break into the Russian-occupied area and shoot? There is therefore going to be a little bit more risky situation, I suspect, even than we had in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And just finally, you raised the point about China, and it's something I'd thought about a bit, quite a lot, and I've read about this, Mark. The president in China, who is one of uh, Putin's few allies, we know that Putin was in China for the for the Winter Olympics just a couple of weeks ago, he'll be having his eye on what happened. Does he use this then as a pretext to finally bring Taiwan under the Chinese heel all over again? Well, I think that must be the danger, isn't it? The, the sense that the Americans are impotent, or at least probably reasonably the Americans don't want to start the Third World War either with Russia, a nuclear armed state, or China. The Chinese may say, well, if the Russians can overrun a big, huge country of 40-odd million people like Ukraine, maybe we can squeeze Taiwan into kowtowing uh, to us and accepting our rule again. Uh, and ultimately none of the Western states or Japan will do anything about it. And that's a very dangerous situation because just as the Russians started this war because Putin said, you're pushing us into a corner and now they're lashing out. You could have a situation where the United States feels it's been pushed into a corner by the Russians and the Chinese. Maybe it would lash out. None of it's very heartening, is it, Mark? I, I, I hate to have to say it, it would be nice to be optimistic and say that this is all a great mistake and, and re sweet reasonable rain and there will be a ceasefire and so on in the next 48 hours. But I fear 
that we have really entered into a very dark period of history, which perhaps people naively thought your power politics had gone away. Well, they've come back with a vengeance. They have. That's Mark Armand. He's director of the Crisis Research Institute at Oxford. Thanks for joining us. So the Conservative MP for the Alawite, Bob Seeley, has written a powerful piece in the Daily Mail welcoming Boris Johnson's initial sanctions on Russia, but urging far more must be done to target dirty money linked to Russian oligarchs in London. It's been reported that Russians accused of corruption or have links to the Kremlin have bought up property in Britain around amounting to one and a half billion pounds, nearly a third of it in Westminster, which is, of course, just a stone's throw from Parliament. There are about 2,200 UK registered companies allegedly involved in Russian money laundering, involving figures of up to £82 billion. Chillingly, the Commons Intelligence and Security Committee now warns the position is so dire their own agencies, including the National Crime Agency and Serious Fraud Office, are not equipped to take on Putin's kleptocrats. I'm delighted to say Bob Seeley joins me now. Bob, is it difficult? How difficult is it to to get to these people, to get to their money and to freeze it? I think that is a question best answered by experts. But what I can say is that our laws have not helped to do the right thing and to take that fight to oligarchs and to kleptocrats. And I'm afraid to say we're now beginning to pay um, geopolitically, strategically, a very heavy price for that. We haven't got an economic crimes bill. We don't have a foreign lobbying law. Uh, our lobbying laws, domestic laws, aren't really fit for purpose. We're having difficulty with data protection and libel laws because they're being misused by unscrupulous lawyers working for oligarchs. So I think there are a range of problems. How did we get into this position? I mean, London has long been a, a magnet for money coming in from outside. It's one of the great uh, city trading areas. But it is London, it seems, much more than any other uh, city in Europe, Bob Seeley, that has become, well, we know it's become known as the laundromat for dirty Russian money. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, there's one slight problem with this is that we're beginning to think everything comes out of Russia and all Russians are bad, and that's not the case. And uh, we all know of lots course. of wonderful Russians and indeed Ukrainians. So we, we do have to be careful on that. We're talking about small numbers of people who are facilitators, officially or unofficially, for the Russian regime. So it's just worth pointing pointing that out, Andrews. I know you would wish to do so yourself. Um, we've allowed that to happen because I think for two reasons. That the city has always said they want a light touch approach, and the reason they want a light touch approach is to make themselves more competitive to New York. And unfortunately, on the back of that, you've had a lot of questionable money come in. Organised crime money, not necessarily, although I'm sure that's out there too, but primarily kleptocrat money and money from very wealthy individuals who've effectively privatised chunks of the state, whether that's Russia or whether that's other post-Soviet, former Soviet states. The second problem is that our politicians, and I'm not talking about the current government, but previous governments, have categorically always said they either don't want for the UK to pay an economic price um, for quotes unquote standing up to the Putin regime um, but at the same time they have not wanted to offend the Russians either so in 2015 the government the coalition government took the decision either 214 or 215 I can't remember which year but they took the uh, decision not to arm the Ukrainians in case it would upset the Russians this was after the Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine what now should happen regarding the money in we've heard in the last few minutes you may have heard it that the european union says they've um they're freezing the the assets of putin himself and the foreign minister lavrov i don't know how easy it is to do that um what would you urge the british government to do now to try to perhaps wrong expression maybe clean up the city or to 
get to more of this Russian money? I think the first thing we have to say is to all these prestigious city and law firms, it's in their interest not for their reputations to be trashed because history may judge those people who facilitated the Putin regime in an incredibly unpleasant way. And if I was a lawyer who had been able to argue that it was just another client working for some questionable individuals, pursuing some questionable lawsuits, I would begin to ask myself about you know, what side I was on and what the law meant to me. And I would do the same for the financiers and I would do the same for the reputation launderers. And I'm sure they're all decent good people, but maybe some of their actions are not going to look so good in the light of history. And if I was one of them, I would be thinking very carefully about um, my my work in the last few years and what I thought of it. Um, likewise, if I was one of those ex-politicians peddling influence or strategic advice, I would start thinking very carefully uh, about, about what side I wanted to be seen to be on by history. Um, Specific things, Andrew, you're absolutely right to ask economics crime bill so that we have we have true ownership of offshore trusts. Why is it in our national interest to have over 90,000 um, homes owned by offshore trusts, even you know, London and the southeast below? I think the true figure is much higher. Why is it our, in our interests um, that companies' houses are so tightly regulated? Why is it in our interest not to have a foreign lobbying law worth anything? Why is it in our interest to allow... Um, oligarchs um, acting on legal advice to misuse data and uh, libel laws to harass and intimidate journalists. None of this is in our national interest. And our political leaders now, as they are doing under this government, need to start thinking very firmly about what's in our national interest. That's Bob Seeley, who's the Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight. And if you haven't read his piece in the Mail, do. It's very powerful and rather chilling. Ben Winstanley is assistant sports editor at the Mail and joins you now. Ben, uh, you've had done the right thing. They've banned that Champions League final, which was due to be held in Russia. It's now going to be in Paris. Yeah, absolutely. So not a huge surprise that they have moved the final. There was talks about where it might move to and they confirmed this morning that it, it will be moved to Paris. They were under quite a lot of pressure to do this. Obviously, we have politicians in England, such as the Foreign Secretary, a couple of days ago urging English clubs, if they get there, to not go. Obviously, that's now not an issue with UEFA taking that decision relatively early. It's been welcomed by most parties. The Players' Union, FIFPRO, have welcomed it. I suppose the key question is whether it's an adequate sanction against Russia, given that their domestic teams and the national team will still be allowed to play in UEFA competitions. They've been told they will not be allowed to host matches um, and they must be held at neutral venues. But, yeah, the key next is whether, whether UEFA will go further. Oh, they must, they should, and there'll be pressure for them to do that. And I gather also the Grand Prix that was due to be held in Sochi in Russia later this year, that's off too. Yeah, absolutely. They're due to race in Sochi in September. They were under quite a lot of pressure, the FIA, to either move or move the race or cancel it. Um, yesterday, the four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, said he'd refuse to race there um, if the race did go ahead, calling Putin mad for what he's doing. So, again, not a huge surprise, but um, another sign, I suppose, of sports taking sanctions, however symbolic they may be, against Russia. And in domestic sport, Ben, we must talk about sport. It is a a big weekend on rugby. England playing Wales. That's going to be a good match. It should be. And England's plans rather thrown into chaos last night with the withdrawal of Manu Tuolagi with a hamstring injury. He was due to make his first Six Nations appearance for two years. But then, yeah, hours after being named in the team, um, had to pull out. So... Eddie Jones is going to have a few decisions to make about how he reshuffles his pack. But obviously, a huge game for both teams. Um, Wales will be hoping to get one over on England, given their own their injury problems. But 
Um, I think England probably favourites, but it uh, has thrown things a bit up in the air, the injury news. So, and Scotland, have they, they've got a big match too this weekend, have they? Um, yeah, Scotland are playing France in the uh, first game of the weekend. So, um, yeah, Scotland-France early afternoon and then England-Wales following at Twickenham after that. Well, um, you'll be glued to it. I won't, but uh, <laughs> and you'll get full coverage of it in, in, in the Daily Mail sports pages and, of course, on Mail+. Plus. Um, that's Ben Winstanley, who's the assistant sports editor here at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. So consumers are not happy and they're not happy with major retailers who they say are still using the pandemic as a catch-all excuse for poor customer service. The UK's Institute of Customer Service says the number of people who've experienced a problem with a retailer or an organisation is at its highest level since they began collecting data in 2008. Uh, Jo Corson is the Chief Executive of the Institute of Customer Service and she joins me now. Uh, Jo, what are most of the complaints about? Well, it's really interesting. And as you said, it's the highest number that we've seen. And the types of issues around product availability, timeliness and the quality of products, which is a little different to what we've seen previously, but I think does reflect the challenging environment that we're actually operating in at the moment. And it's um, it's across the board, isn't it? Energy suppliers, well, we're all fed up with them for all sorts of reasons. Airlines, insurance company, the post office, they've been all, all been singled out by uh, for sending mixed messages or substandard response, substandard service. Yes, and I think, you know, undoubtedly, as we said, the whole thing with Brexit, the whole thing with COVID, it's been a really challenging landscape for us as customers and consumers, but also for organisations. And one of the things that we would always say you know, to any organisation is about good communication. And, you know, most of us are quite reasonable. We understand that it is difficult at the moment. But I think we get frustrated when the communication isn't clear or we don't feel particularly engaged. So we get blanket messages sent to us. So the really big thing for me, Andrew, around getting organisations to really connect with us and to explain the issues and problems we've got and to give us clarity around how long we're going to have to wait uh, and, and just respond in a much more proactive way. I was just looking at the RAC. I mean, what on earth can be the, the justification for people sometimes having to wait eight hours if they've broken down? It's just not good enough, is it? No, and absolutely. You know, as we're saying, it's, it is a challenging situation. But, you know, when you are in need or in urgent need, being kept up to speed, uh, uh, really good confirmation about how long that's going to take and really prioritising. You know, organisations need to prioritise vulnerable customers, for example, is going to be increasingly important because we are challenged. We've got less workforce at the moment. We've got, you know, as consumers, we're facing into, as we said, a higher energy crisis, uh, rising inflation. And therefore, you know, we are all probably going to have to give a bit, to be honest with you, Andrew. Organisations communicating and engaging more and us as consumers accepting that maybe things will not be as, a, as effective or as efficient as we go through this. Uh, interesting that a lot of people complain and I think we can all relate to this when you are trying to get through to say where's my delivery where's x you have that intensely irritating music uh, and a recorded message saying uh, hold on we, we know you're there but lines are extremely busy when it's blindingly obvious something's not right because you can't because you're hanging on for perhaps 40 minutes or an hour Absolutely. And again, this comes back to the communication. You know, it's very frustrating if we get a line that says your call is important to us, to your point, Andrew, and we've been waiting for a long time. Much better to, uh, you know, be able to say this, we are experiencing uh, high demand uh, and therefore it will take this length of time 
for us to respond and these are other options that you actually have. So helping to manage some of that communication to us is increasingly important, but also making sure that we've got enough resource and that those lines are actually staffed and alternative ways of being able to make contact with an organisation should we choose to. Probably six months ago they could get away with the message on the on the post office uh, customer care line for instance which says sorry about the, the delay blaming Covid for being unable to return calls but we've, we're coming out of Covid now uh, we're all going back to work we don't even have to wear masks if we don't want to on public transport they're going to have to think of a more an original excuse aren't they or perhaps just do their job properly. <laughs> I think what we do need to do, absolutely, it's no good blaming COVID because to your point, we have become more frustrated. We're two years on. And, you know, as we were saying before, be honest about it. Where organisations in our latest UK customer satisfaction index, where organisations actually communicated well, so they explained if they did have problems, they told us how long we were going to have to wait and gave us alternative solutions, then we're a bit more patient with it. Blanket responses just frustrate us. Just finally, do you name and shame the worst organisation? No, we don't name and shame. We really try to uh, help organisations and focus on organisations that are getting it right, really, Andrew. So when we look at the top 10, the top 10 organisations in the latest UK CSI, our first direct, they come up well. John Lewis come up well. Saga come up well. So there's a number of organisations that we consistently see in the top 10. But I think it's fair to say that even that has been changing. So it's a very volatile landscape. And as organisations, we know and we should know that customer service is absolutely critical to the long term performance of an organisation. So those that invest in the service agenda now and invest in us actually will pay dividends in the longer term. Definitely. Indeed, that's um, very interesting. That's Joe Corson, who's Chief Executive of the Institute of Customer Service. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend, considering what's going on in Ukraine. Not so easy. And good night. <laughs>